Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Craig McDonald and William Patrick Maynard ponder the question of influence or coincidence in Ernst Hemingway's fiction and Dashiell Hammett's hard-boiled pulp. The talk was recorded on Saturday, August 6, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All right, in the beginning, uh, Hemingway and Hammett were roughly uh, peers. Hammett was a few years older. They both died in the same year, just a few months apart. Um, there are many, many parallels between the two authors. I didn't realize how many until we started going back and forth with our notes on this. So uh, what we are at least ostensibly exploring is whether one of these authors influenced the other because they both obviously had very laconic, pared down prose styles, very masculine, very suggestive. They weren't uh, burying you in uh, a lot of fancy writing. Hemingway famously said that writing should be architecture and not interior decoration. Uh, Hammett probably took it even more to the bone than Hemingway in some ways. So, Called interior decorators gunzels. Mugs. But it's also the fact that um, both of them brought uh, a new realism to their work. Are, am I, are you having trouble hearing me back there? Okay. Um, and uh, with that realism, it comes from the fact that they drew upon their careers prior to writing, as well as their life experiences, which we'll start to get into. Dashiell Hammett um, worked a number of jobs as a young man, newspaper delivery boy, worked in various blue-collar capacities. Uh, he moved into the Pinkerton Detective Agency for a number of years. He was kind of in and out of that. And overlapping that time, at least somewhat, he was also uh, working in advertising. He was very sensitive about that and very defensive of his work, uh, as a quote will indicate. Um, he and Hemingway were fairly similar in that their earliest works were poetry. I can't say I've read any of Hammett's or really found any of his. Hemingway's, uh, Hemingway, as a writer of prose, was a great poet. As a poet, he was a terrible poet. Um, and Hemingway really was writing very, very young in his life. In high school, he uh, published several short stories, one of which actually involves suicide. Uh, actually, two of them do. And that was in his teens. So. Yeah, and probably worth noting with uh, Hammett's Pinkerton background, not only does that play an important role in his later fiction and giving it a new realism that other pulp detective writers lacked, but it also had such an influence on his later political career since much of his work as a Pinkerton man was as a strike breaker. And he would then flip to the other side and uh, definitely... Um, Definitely something that didn't sit well with him, that that was part of his past. Hemingway began his career in journalism. Um, he, he was on the student newspaper. It, that was really probably his most potent extracurricular activity. He played football terribly and uh, just never really... He, he was 
not a, a physically strong person, and that probably contributed to his desire to really project himself as the most manly man on earth later. He ultimately uh, went to the Kansas City Star, partly because he had tried to enlist, and he was basically 4F. He had a, a bad eye and a number of other issues. So he always credited the Kansas City Star's um, style sheet for journalists for helping shape his prose style. And he was writing pretty sparely already in his early teens and into his early 20s. High school grad, no college training whatsoever. And the closest he would have had to any kind of a, a formal literature instructor came in his early 20s when he got to know um, the author. I'm <laughs> blanking on the name, that's terrible. Uh, Gertrude Stein. Not Gertrude Stein, actually. Sherwood Anderson, thank you very much. Yeah, Sherwood Anderson took him under his wing and would regret it much later in life since Hemingway turned on him in a rather uh, vicious way as he did many people who helped him <laughs> along his way. So. You know, and, and part of that we should probably mention from uh, the shared background, like many little boys of their generation, um, and this is in no way a reflection on gender identity, um, they were little boys who wore dresses as boys did in those days and wore their hair like girls. And part of that was in families that had boys and girls, it was simply cheaper to have them wear the same clothes. Um, now in, Ham in Hemingway's case, his mom had the artistic bent um, and his father was the sportsman who from a very young age would take him on into the woods on not just hunting and home at night, but actually sleeping in the rough. So he had that dual nature that he carried through life, the appreciation for the artistic side from his mother, as well as that definition of a, a man who doesn't express his emotions and who understands the world by what he can master and kill with a gun. Um, and that's, that's certainly something that you see throughout Hemingway's writing and his life. His mother took the cross-dressing a little further, too, in that she would <laughs> refer to him and a slightly, I think, elder sister as her twins. And uh, even scrapbooks sort of continue that gender flip. Um, he preserved the, the, the scrapbooks as he preserved just about everything associated with his life. And he was a, he was a clutter artist, so... Okay, coming to the Great War. World War One. Yeah. Uh, Hammett and Hemingway, as we'll see, have some rather bizarre similar experiences. Uh, judged unfit for combat, Hammett served as an ambulance driver. He contracted Spanish flu and then tuberculosis, which afflicted him for the remainder of his life. And uh, while convalescing, the nurse that was taking care of him, he had an affair with and married and she was Josephine Dolan uh, Hemingway, similar situation um, couldn't get drafted couldn't get drafted, couldn't enlist effectively so he too became an ambulance driver that was the ambulance drivers uh, were kind of interesting because they were all literary figures it sounds like including John Dos Passos, Gertrude Stein I, I can't even conceive of her driving an ambulance but she did and Alice B. Toklas did as well and uh, uh, I believe George Orwell also was an ambulance driver in the First World War. 
So Hemingway uh, actually was so eager to see action that he, he violated protocols. He was working for the Red Cross. He took a bike and literally bicycled to the point where he could then enter the trenches. And he went into the for forwardmost trenches on the Italian line to distribute chocolates and cigarettes to the actual troops. And uh, a mortar came over and think of a trash can filled with scrap metal, basically. That's what came down. And um, there was someone between him and its point of impact. That person was, I, I think, almost literally cut in half. They, they finally figured out who he was. He was an Italian, Italian soldier that they've named. Uh, Hemingway supposedly was shot in both knees. And at that, at that point, he, he has no memory of it himself. But it became a, at least a, a point of history that he had somebody across his back he was trying to carry, even though at that point he had um, almost 100 pieces of shrapnel or more in his legs and elsewhere in his body, and then was machine gunned in the legs. Um, met a nurse named Agnes von Kurowski, who was slightly older than himself, and they formed a relationship that she would later maintain was much deeper on his end, and she was just kind of a flirt. Or at least that's how she tried to spin it later, although he did propose to her. Um, and with that, uh, one of the things that I, I found interesting was Hemingway, when he was first hospitalized, um, he was in an Italian hospital. The doctors could not speak English. He could not speak Italian. He did not know if he was going to keep his legs or not. Um, and when he later went home, he was unable to express that to his parents, especially his father, who did not want to hear and would not tolerate as a man any of the anxiety you felt. So when you, you know, in today's world, we think of post-traumatic stress. Um, he definitely went through trauma, uh, both within the injury and not being able to express that and knowing that his father would not view him as a man if he did express it. In that picture, actually, um, he explained to his father, who was a physician, yeah, um, more of a pediatrician by our current standards, but, but a physician, um, that in this picture it looked like he had lost his left leg, which was the least injured of the two legs, and he uh, reassured them that wasn't the case. And there's even an illustration of his own body he drew where he puts X's and, and basically diagrams his, his injuries. The one thing Hemingway did have a great skill for was he, he never mastered any language. Everyone said he was totally ungrammatical. <laughs> but if you dropped him in a country, he would, within a, a week or two, he was conversing reasonably well and picked up German, Italian, French, and Spanish particularly. And the nurse he had the affair with that he fell in love with and asked to marry, um, she, she was involved with someone else who she married. Um, but uh, that obviously becomes one of his more famous storylines early on. But it's also, it begins the pattern. Her abandoning him becomes what he will do with his successive relationships, um, both romantic relationships and, as you pointed out, even with, with friends. Um, that that sort of pattern of I get close to someone and then I walk out on them. It should be noted, she, she abandoned him really coldly, too, in the sense that she, she got him 
home. He, he, was sent, he was sent back to Michigan, and his mother at that point was not, not really being motherly at all, but uh, he receives the Dear John letter, basically, where she, she calls him a kid and calls him kid throughout the letter, and it's, it's very cold, and, and, and it, just, it was not gracefully done. In Hammett's case, the first wife, I, I think they kind of grew apart, partly just because of his own tendencies to ramble. But uh, because he had tuberculosis, and she was a nurse, and she had, um, they had two children. I mm -hmm. don't believe they were his. I believe they were hers originally. Maybe, no, they, they, were, were, they were his. They were his. Um, he would sleep apart from them just because tuberculosis was so horrifically contagious. So it, it wasn't a close-knit family in that sense. So Hammett comes back to the United States. Hemingway goes to Paris uh, fairly soon after marrying uh, his first wife, uh, who was named Hadley Richardson. That's where Sherwood Anderson came in. Um, he was the best-selling author at the time, and or one of the top authors in the United States, and recommended that, in Hemingway's case particularly, since he didn't go to college or have any kind of a, a kind of preparation as a writer, he needed to go there because that's where modern literature was happening. And Sherwood Anderson very kindly provided him uh, letters of introduction to key people in the uh, Latin Quarter of Paris, including Gertrude Stein, the, the self-proclaimed uh, godmother of modern literature, <laughs> and uh, a woman named Sylvia Beach, who ran a bookstore in Paris. Uh, she was from the United States. She was rather bohemian. She was the daughter of a uh, of a uh, minister, in fact, and uh, would ultimately publish James Joyce's Ulysses, which at the time was considered the filthiest book on earth. Mm. So. Um, and it's interesting to consider that, you know, while human nature is still human nature, at the time he had the affair, this was still an era where that was not common to be able to fall into that kind of relationship. So he naturally felt, I'm in love. She treated him as the innocent kid who's just learning life. That obviously impacts him. When he's in Paris, Hemingway is very much fulfilling his mother's desire to be part of an artistic circle. One of the things that struck me as most interesting was uh, Hemingway writes how his wife at parties would socialize with Alice B. Toklas while he would socialize with Gertrude Stein. He viewed them in traditional husband-wife relationship, even though it was a same-sex partnership. And it's, it's very interesting considering the era that just because he's, he's part of this literary crowd, he adapts and adjusts so quickly. And really, that's one of the key things, I think, with Hemingway is whatever you throw at him, he quickly uh, adjusts his perception, and it's something he shares with Hammett. If you're familiar with Maltese Falcon with the Flitcraft parable that Sam Spade shares in the book, it's all about adjusting to your new reality and then being yourself again. Yeah, Hammett, by all accounts, was very much a loner and a self-contained person, but everyone who met him thought he was just this amiable, you know, bonhomie guy who was just great to hang with and uh, didn't realize that he didn't, couldn't have cared less about them, probably. <clears throat> okay. 
All right, so uh, kind of going to the heart of whether it's possible one influenced the other or if there was just something sort of in the, the zeitgeist in terms mm -hmm. of starting to drop some of the artifice of literature and really create an American voice. Hammond's published in 1922 in a magazine called The Smart Set. Within a year, he's being published in uh, Black Mass Magazine under that Peter Collinson name initially. His style isn't really quite there yet, but, but substantially it is. Hemingway is published in several little magazines, including one in German, only in translation. Uh, anything he couldn't publish or sell, he would sell to this German magazine called De Korderschnitt. And, uh, and most of it was probably fairly libelous about other writers who pissed him off. And... Uh, he published some, what we would almost consider vanity press, but they were published by small publishers and copies of 100, 200. They never really probably got beyond Paris initially until book collectors really got onto Hemingway. So uh, those early works, the poems, as I said, are terrible. Um, and it, they barely rise to the level of poetry, but the stories, uh, particularly a couple of them in that first collection, Three Stories and Ten Poems, his pro style is substantially already there in terms of just very close to the bone writing, suggesting rather than telling uh, the iceberg principle famously that if you know something, you don't necessarily have to write it. It will be implied and tacitly there and readers will detect it. Even though they might not know they're detecting it, they'll know there's something more there and it, and it will engage them as a partner in, in the storytelling. Part of what I find interesting is that Hammett started out, you know, in H.L. Mencken's circle with Smart Set, and obviously was aiming higher, um, and certainly aiming much higher than his educational background and association in circles for writing would have would have really suggested. Um, he finds his niche right away, even in Peter Collinson days, with that byline, with the Continental Op. That's really what changes his fortune. And um, while the op is nameless in his stories, he's drawing on Pinkerton days as a Pinkerton operative. And it's also the beginning of his fat men, thin men, uh, since his characters are always defined by their appetites and not necessarily um, what they eat. Um, it's, it's as much their, their sexual, intellectual, um, what they lust after. You know, Maltese Falcon can be seen as a book that's all about appetites, whether it's for another man's wife, um, a treasure that you think is worth killing for, um, or, or the appetite for integrity when it does kick in. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit when we get into it for his life, but that's one of the key things, I think, with Hammett, is he's a guy who can cheat with his partner's wife, but when his partner is killed then suddenly develops a conscience. And the same will happen in Hammett's own life when he will develop a conscience. Uh, and that's interesting to see with, with Hemingway. He's now completely part of this circle that even as much as their chapbooks and the like being printed, here he is, he's made it for artistic circles, but then he's going off and doing all these African safaris where he's hunting wild game, hunting boar, and, and he truly has one foot in his father's image of him and one foot in his mom's. And that's, that also fascinates me. 
he was rejected. Hemingway actually submitted some works to Mencken, and they were rejected. And the, it was rejected kind of, you know, um, snarkily. Yeah. And Hemingway could carry a grudge like no one on earth. And so, yeah, years, decades later, they're coming to him and asking for stories. And he's like, well, you know, the one you rejected that was published by Scribner's in a hardcover collection that you know was a best-selling book of the year. So he, uh, Hammond at least succeeded with the Minkins where Hemingway never did. Good. The big books. Um, whether Hammett would ever really have had access to Hemingway in terms of having an influence, it's very, very doubtful. Hemingway probably entered his consciousness. Hammett actually was a book reviewer and did some literary reviews too, so it's conceivable he might have seen something by Hemingway at that point, but very unlikely. The Sun Also Rises was really Hemingway's big arrival, and when it came, it came like thunder. Uh, published in 26, it went through several printings very quickly. Um, it was interesting that Scribner's published it. They were a very traditional house that wanted to sort of throw off their fusty image and increase their sales base, and here came Hemingway. Um, and uh, the book wasn't just the United States, it, it was an international phenomenon, and everyone started talking like Hemingway's characters very quickly, and Americans went to Paris in great numbers. And I mean, Hemingway has a, <laughs> has a history of basically destroying good places. I mean, he would go to Paris and he would get out just at the time everyone else is coming over after he's immortalized it. It happened in Key West. I mean, Key West is insanely expensive now. When he was there, it was, it was very impoverished and it was the height of the Depression. He did it with uh, Pamplona, too. I mean, that mm -hmm. has never been the same since the Sun Also Rises came out through the bull ride fighting and such. It's probable Hammett, I'm certain he read The Sun Also Rises. Um, his first book, um, The Maltese Falcon, the big third, book. Third, his, yeah, it was his, yeah, third, but that was the one that really kind of put him on the map. But each of his books were really serialized in Black Mask, and then he would go through and, and try and shape them into a more cohesive novel. So if you've read The Maltese Falcon, but you haven't read it in the original Black Mask, you would find textual differences in mm -hmm. pacing and sentence restructuring and that sort of thing. So um, Hemingway does not return to the United States until 28, 29-ish. Uh, at that point, he's still kind of in moving across the country, waiting for his first son to be born. It's a kind of a rough birth, and then eventually he gets to Key West and will settle down there. We don't really get a real sense of true moment when one recognizes the other until Hammett publishes a short story in 1927, mm -hmm. I believe, and uh, he has a character reading The Sun Also Rises in that book, or that short story in Black, Black Mask. And one of the things I think is interesting with Sun Also Rises is you can very much look at Hemingway's fascination with bullfighting as a continuation of that inheritance from his father of what defines masculinity, but it also seems like it's an allegory for life form um, in which you, you take on the bull and you honor it, but one of you or both of you are going to die and li largely die violently. Um, it may be a glorious death, but it's it's a gory one. Um, 
And much was made of Hemingway's prose, which for the time seemed so remarkable for both what he said and what he didn't say. He, he approaches prose like, like a musician, knowing when to be silent and, and when to, to play. And his own analogy for it was the iceberg theory, in which um, you describe only what you need to that's above the surface. And without getting too psychological with it and make John Brenning laugh at me, um, it, it fits Hemingway where he was at at that point that he can only really look at what is above the surface with his pain, um, which he describes like no one else could. But all that's lurking below the surface is really the key to what drives his fiction and everything in his life. Hammett, um, we talked about the appetites with Maltese Falcon, but not only is he the first real pulp writer to be given a literary reception now, but he's also, he dedicates this work to his wife. And yet the work is all about a man who is cheating and characters you cannot trust, characters like Gutman or Wilmer or certainly, you know, the the these characters are it, the key to it is as much as you hear Bogart's voice from the iconic film when you read that first line and he describes Sam Spade as a as a blonde Satan he's describing himself and uh, much of it is a, a someone wrestling with where they know they've not just fallen but thrown in the towel and where they think they have a line that prevents them from being so bad as a gutman. And, and that's, uh, you can see both of them are wrestling, whether they are, were aware of it or not. Subconsciously, they were wrestling with their own demons. Yeah, I'd forgotten The Sun Also Rises is dedicated to his first wife, Hadley, yeah. who was there through the entire process, and to his son, who he named after, he gave a middle name, it's, uh, John Hadley Nicanor. Hemingway, Nicanor was the name of a bullfighter Hemingway really admired at the time. But when the book was published, they had already separated. He had met his soon-to-be second wife, who had become uh, Hadley's friend, maybe innocently, but probably not. But, uh, and he's, he's already moving on to this new life. Um, someone observed that it was convenient at the time. He, to Hemingway's credit, he gave all of the royalties of his first novel to his wife and son, and that remained his best-selling work. So they were, you know, set for life in that sense. Uh, but he he was moving on with a woman who came from an extremely rich family and had an uncle who adored Hemingway um, and helped pay for their Key West house and some cars and you know the safari and that sort of thing. Kim, um, the life in parallel between Hammett and Hemingway. You can do the Hemingway Hammett. Uh, we kind of touched on most yeah, of this. But, the, uh, yeah, inevitably. The doomed relationships with the women who nursed each of them back to health leads to lives marred by serial infidelity, abandonment, and alcoholism. That's I, both I think of them. Hammett was a pretty heavy drinker fairly early on. Hemingway yeah. was one of these people who could handle alcohol pretty well and people will comment about that but it's as with anything it eventually accumulates upon you and his drinking would become more and more problematic as he moved deeper through age and and he had a tremendous genetic load he was fighting toward uh, involving depression and 
just massive mood swings that would become worse and worse. And, and the pain. Yeah, and the pain. Yeah. Yeah, and his leg. He, he was pulling pieces of metal out of his leg well into his 50s uh, because they would just slowly come to the surface from that, that shrapnel explosion in the First World War. But he was self-medicating through alcohol. Um, so they they also both go to World War II again. Neither neither one is in a position to serve. Obviously, Hemingway, Hammett went there. I think very nobly and, and with great heart. And um, not as a combatant, he actually created a newspaper and ran it for I believe about a year. He was the editor, which in journalism usually means you're the writer and they're paying you in a title, although this is the military, so there's not really pay. <laughs> Hemingway was really trying to sit out World War II. There's this uh, scene in MASH where the, the Hawkeye character, it's always bothered me. He was like, I loved Hemingway's writing, but how would anyone love going to war? And, and he really didn't ever really strike me as that guy. Uh, he went to the Spanish Civil War as a writer. He raised money for ambulances. Um, he had a passion for Spain, but it was it was more activism on his part. Um, World War II, he was he saw it coming. He wrote a lot of predictive columns about it and articles because he always kept sort of a foot in the journalism world. But he he had to really be shamed into it. His wife, now his third wife, Martha Gellhorn, a journalist and eventual novelist. Um, went to war very early and she did a lot of famous pieces um, and she was kind of shaming him from afar that you need to be over here and we need your voice and he was at that point they were living in Cuba in um, a house called the Finca de Villa and he had taken his boat the Pilar which he used for sports fishing and he had converted it into a submarine hunting craft um, and had this idea that they were going to look for subs in the Cuban area uh, German subs, and he had this elaborate plan to blow one up with his fishing boat, which would have looked roughly like the boat Robert Shaw has in Jaws. I mean, it's very similar with outriggers and about the same dimensions. So if you can imagine trying to take out a sub with one of those and a hand grenade, carefully placed, that's, that was kind of the plan. And she was saying that it was just an excuse for him to go out and fish, hang out with his Cuban drinking buddies, and get gasoline at a time when gasoline was heavily rationed. And at that point, the FBI got very interested in Hemingway and started uh, surveilling him and, and to the extent he was aware of it. And uh, he eventually goes to the Second World War as a, a journalist. Uh, his marriage is falling apart to the extent that he actually uh, Collier's Magazine as Martha Gellhorn's sponsor as she's in Europe covering World War II. Hemingway gets credentials from Colliers and, and basically Bigfoot's over her. Um, and at some point, he actually will start to take up arms um, with a guerrilla unit he kind of creates of Maquis. And he's among the first people to, to literally liberate Paris. And the, one of the first places he liberates is the Ritz Hotel and its bar. But he got there ahead of everyone and other um, journalists, including Andy Rooney, who hated Hemingway and met him over there, um, were very upset that he was wearing sidearms and essentially operating as a, a soldier. And 
he gets reported the patent and patents unit um, eventually will put him on trial for violating the Geneva Convention for journalists. Now, Hammett, and we have to back up a bit yeah. before the war, Hammett after the Maltese Falcon becomes, uh, his work reflects his growing interest in politics. Um, the Glass Key is very much a, a book that reflects political corruption and the notion that everything is an artifice, no one is to be trusted. Um, as he moves into his relationship with Lillian Hellman, which you know you could call a common law marriage easily, um, though they were in and out of each other's homes, um, he becomes much more interested in the rights of writers in particular and becomes very much involved in the Communist Party. And if you read his letters that Hellman later edited it for publication after his death, you can see he was extremely critical of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union um, and even here in the States. But what he saw was a belief that someone should be protecting the worker. And that's you know completely the wrong attitude to have in the McCarthy era because it marks you as un-American. And this is a man that fought in two world wars and considered himself a patriotic American and did not see them as conflicting attitudes, despite the fact that the prevailing political opinion said, if you're on the side of the worker, you're not American, you're a communist and an enemy. And as critical as he can be for the party politically, like he was of all politics, um, he was willing to stand by his principles not name names, and actually go to prison. Uh, and he was persecuted by the IRS and everything you can expect. But one of the key things that, as much as you've got that political side, when you look at the appetite and the self-destructive nature, once he settles into a relationship with Hellman, he does one portrayal of them as Nick and Nora Charles in The Thin Man, which is not the light and breezy fun of William Polymer and Alloy. It's much more cynical if you read the book. And that's really the end of his writing. Um, his, for all of his failings as a husband and father, when he actually moved away from Jos and then to Lillian, that ended whatever drove him to create. And from that point on, he's a legend who acts as a public figure, but he's not writing anymore. And that's, that's a, that struggle is a kind of a fascinating one. I'll have you say it because you wrote this paragraph and I loved it. So please do it. Before I do that, I'll just mention, <laughs> no, I'll just mention Dashiell Hammett. Actually, this is where Hemingway and Dashiell Hammett, we know, from Hemingway's perspective, he's aware of Hammett because he asked for a copy of The Glass Key. He would write his editor, Max Perkins, and say, here's my book list, and they would send him the books. He asked for The Glass Key by Dashiell Hammett specifically. So and we were kind of trading notes back and forth, and uh, Hammett is a self-contained study in personal failure and self-destruction measured against his ardent political activism. His personal corruption soured his ability to write after 1934 while his intolerance for political corruption made him a man so principled that he was willing to serve prison time rather than compromise his values. That's the closest thing to a true collaboration I've ever had in my life. No, likewise. <laughs> I, 
And Solo Lobo was a writer <laughs> in the other time, so. Hemingway is, a, as we said, he's clearly what we today would say was a victim of trauma. Um, and one of the things we talked about a lot in our emails were you know, being condemned to a generational curse of chronic depression. His grandfather committed suicide, his father committed suicide, Hemingway, as we know, committed suicide. His brother, one of his sisters, uh, it's believed his son, and one of his granddaughters committed suicide. Uh, he lived a life of pain that could never be expressed as the way he was raised by his father. And outside of, to use his literary theory, his iceberg floating above the surface. He could only talk about what was above the surface and not the pain beneath. And that year, 31, that's when we know Hemingway and Hammett shared some space together because um, there was a... Um, they're publishing Hemingway's letters, and I, I doubt I ever live long enough to see all of them because it's a 15-volume work, and they're a volume five, and they come out about every three or four years. But they actually dig down into auction books and that sort of thing. So they found a book that was uh, inscribed by Hemingway to a reviewer and sometimes fiction writer, and he talks about that night when we met Dashiell Hammett, that white, he calls him some, uh, trying to remember, it was yeah. a a white-haired, uh, talented... Calpist. Calpist, <laughs> tall <laughs> guy full of calpist or something like yeah. that, who, who lectured us not to be mugs. And um, so we do know that that encounter happened. And then later, uh, several biographers have picked up something where Lillian Hellman claims that Hemingway and um, Hammett Fitzgerald were all at a party together, and Hemingway was feeling somehow shamed or, or just not worthy and kind of embarrassed himself and stormed out. But the problem with Lillian Hellman is if her lips were moving, she was probably lying. And <laughs> there's documentary evidence that never occurred. So, Go ahead. so Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler was a, a book collector and um, knew them both. Uh, they're some pictures, a famous picture of a bunch of black mag magazine writers together, and most of them were kind of also Rance Horace McCoy's in it. He's, he, we all know him still, but um, some of them are sort of sitting in the middle looking at the camera. It's interesting in that picture because you have Hammett at one end and uh, Raymond Chandler on the other, and they're both looking at each other. They're, in fact, they're not looking at the camera, they're almost in profile. But he was an admirer of both writers. He, uh, Chandler even defended Hemingway at one point after uh, a book came out called Across the River and Into the Trees. It was Hemingway's only real straightforward attempt at a World War II novel after he had written the, you know, arguably the great, the great novel about the First Great War, or the Great War. And uh, he basically thought that, as, as he says here, that they, they were running on similar paths probably from the very beginning. I think Hemingway, from my own perspective, did more with less than Hammett did, in a sense. Some of Hammett's writing doesn't quite hit that undertow of implication that Hemingway could do at his best. And Tulip, his unfinished fragment that Hammett played with for many years, part of which has been published. Um, while it's not in my view, it's not very good. It's an attempt to do something literary. It's an attempt to aim for 
something that would put him in the same circle as a Hamlet, or I'm sorry, a Hemingway and a Fitzgerald. Um, because always there was that sense that, like Chandler, there's almost an embarrassment that they came from the pulps and uh, a desire to prove their worth. And um, that, that actually ties nicely to yesterday's conversation. I think a lot of writers feel is um, uh, you carry with you the sense of insecurities and, and the belief that just because you were put down in life you're somehow not worthy to be in that circle. And we saw it with Hemingway, and you certainly see it with Hammett, and you see it with Chandler. Yeah, I think if Hemingway ever wrote a crime novel, and here's another parallel with Hammett, it's probably the first third of um, To Have and Have Not. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about it before this, but uh, similar to, to Hammett's novels, at least the early ones, um, to Have and Have Not basically comes from a series of novellas that Hemingway wrote for Esquire magazine. And then he, he sort of pulled them together into a novel format. And uh, and then the, at the very end, it kind of veers off and imitates the end of James Joyce's Ulysses, where you get this long monologue by a female character. But in the opening of To Have and Have Not, you get a bank robbery in the Keys where there's Tommy guns and it could have been lifted from Black Mask. It's it's the closest thing you'll ever get to Hemingway writing pulp. Okay, any questions? Is it, is it true that Hammond wanted to join the army so there in World War II that he had all those teeth pulled and it wouldn't accept him with rotten teeth? I don't know I if that's true. I have not heard that either, yeah. but now that you mention it, I've seen photos and it does make you wonder. Yeah. yeah. I think he got assigned to the illusions. You did, yeah. Yeah. And I heard that story. His teeth were so bad, the army didn't want to be responsible. So we just had them all pulled. Huh. Well, that's a commitment. Yes, sir. Looking at the biography, any recommendations? Oh, gosh. Um, Layman's is a good one. Um, there, there are a number of good Hammett biographies out there. His, his daughter also did a, at least collaborated on a good one that's worth reading. I think one of the early ones is Diane Johnson. Yeah, yeah. from like the mid-80s. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh. So there's, there's at least three versions of Maltese Falcon done in 10 years. Yeah. Not all with the same title. But right. I think it's the middle one. Satan, my lady. That man is a woman. Yeah. Well, I don't mean she's a woman. I mean, the bad, the bad guy is dead. Yeah, and Betty Davis at that. Fine, fine. I went to the library once. They ran all three films. They're, um, at least they were on video together on DVD or Blu-ray. Yeah, Hammett was carried in his later years through radio royalties because you had a Sam Spade radio series, you had a Thin Man radio series, and they even did a radio series built the around Casper Cutman. Yeah. Well, that's more, it's coming a lot more. Yeah. yeah. But using the Fat Man name right. since it was more famous. Yeah. And of course he lost all of that when he was considered... A communist. All of those shows became other shows or went off the air. Yeah, they were canceled. Or, yeah, the IRS came after him for about a hundred thousand dollars yeah. in the nineteen forties. So you can kind of do the the inflation rates on that. Well, we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming.
You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.